Hello, everybody. It's uh, just me, Felix. Uh, the new part of Joppa is the Felix Biederman Signature Interview Series. Uh, we're brought to you by Comet Ping Pong Pizza and The Field of Flight by Michael Flynn in stores now. With me is one of my favorite MMA journalists, one of the one of the guys doing the best work as far as MMA uh, and its intersection with uh, international politics and society, uh, Kareem Zidane. Kareem, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Felix. It's a pleasure to be on here. I'm a big fan of uh, Chapo Trap House and looking forward to having a good discussion with you today. Well, we, we are honored to have you. You are, I think it's only uh, you, me, uh, Pat Wyman, and maybe two other guys who do who who cover you know MMA meets uh, meets political Islam and uh, Baltic politics and everything. Yeah, you know it's uh, it's not some it feels like a very lonely path to be honest, and I've learned that more and more over the past couple of years as I sort of like honed my my craft and focus specifically on on this niche that that we're talking about, mainly the intersection of sports and and politics. I found a lot of people. Uh, are not are not willing to get their hands dirty in that regard. It's very easy, and I found this a lot in, in MMA, and I was speaking to another journalist about this uh, recently on a show, and we came to the conclusion, really, that at the slightest sign of intimidation, most MMA journalists turn to cowardice, really, at that point. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you, you watch any UFC press conference, and, uh, you know, I would almost put it analogous to the... Uh, past 20 years of uh, beltway journalism where your entire business model depends on access and it causes most reporters to ask like a certain type of question, you know, be it, uh, you know, Dana, do you think this is the best card ever? Or, uh, uh, you know, Tito, are you going to be a champion again? And they sort of co-opt themselves as a half publicist, half journalist, but you're, you're really one of the uh, only guys who really does practice journalism in this field. I think the whole the whole interest in access really comes down to the fact that MMA, be it because it's so young or be it the sorts of just just the sort of writers it attracts at the end of the day, we don't really have that many like uh, old school style journalists or people who even just come through a journalist program. In general, the problem is we have a lot of fanboy bloggers and people who just want access. They don't necessarily want to report anything seriously and i know quite a few of them really at this point that are guilty for that exactly and what they care about is meeting these fighters and having this sort of cage side access to the event maybe asking a few really run-of-the-mill questions and calling it a day from there but no one wants to push dana white and dana white being a brash aggressive sort of like character in that regard no one is going to be none a lot of these people just don't want to push with it they don't realize that this is the way this is this, we're not here to be nice to people. We're not here to promote them. They are promoters themselves. Hence, it's like it's in their title, really. <laughs> Promoter. We are not. We're supposed to do that. What we're supposed to do is scrutinize. And I think we, like that. That sort of that's a, that's a path that most don't take in the sports. And it's really really sad to see. You see it with some. You see some that that can do. It. And I understand that it really depends. I mean, if you're a beat journalist and you and and your job requires you to have access and not be banned by the UFC. I understand when you have, and especially if you have a family to feed, etc. I understand the argument that, that that many come up with. Maybe because I'm not in that exact position, I find it I find it to be different. The problem again comes down to the UFC and the way it decides to to run its business as well. That sort of oppressive model and is is just never is is not supposed to work. But they've managed to get away with it for so many years. It's going to be interesting to see under new ownership if this changes in the slightest. But I don't have my hopes up for it because. We don't, first of all, have a union of sorts. We're not united as a front as journalists to, to attack this uh, this sort of model and to actually stand against it. And it only works for for, for a few people. I mean, Ariel Hawani got banned for one event and the whole mainstream media backed him up and he suddenly had his job back. But again, we've had Josh Gross, Jonathan Snowden and many, many others super talented writers held the majority of Bloody Elbow, Bloody Elbow, which I'm a part of. We don't get access to UFC events. It's funny, really, being nominated for an MMA award as Journalist of the Year when I can't have access to the events themselves. The irony of it all, really. It's it's very bizarre because, you know, in the past two years especially, you've had uh, 
you've had quite a few stories that have really dominated news cycles. And, you know, when there's a vacuum in this certain area of MMA reporting where there's very little investigation and the pieces themselves do act as sort of PR for fights and fighters, yet because of the capricious nature and the authoritarian nature of the UFC, your outlet can't get in there. I mean... I uh, I I was I've been having a lot of arguments since the election, where people are yelling at journalists I know, and even even me, they're yelling at the show because they said that we caused Hillary to lose. That would be fun if we had that type of influence, but uh, I don't think we did. But it's it, it hits to this point where you go, well, okay, is it the job of Glenn Greenwald or Rania Colick or someone to make it so Hillary wins? There's this fundamental disagreement uh, and misunderstanding of what the nature of journalism is. And, yeah, it's uh, very similar to what you see in the UFC. Yeah, I truly believe that we can't, as, as human beings, we do have inherent biases, and that that's, that will obviously come out in journalism, whether it be your, your, your background, uh, how you grew up, the traumas you've gone through in life. All these things will define you, and in the end, somehow impact impacts your writing uh, it's it, but you don't get too many people interested in going down investigative paths and at the end of the day you you starting to you, you have fans who are now and people just in general who are adjusted to the idea that reporters are supposed to be on a certain side or against a certain side when at the end of the day we're, if you're investigating a story and you have facts in front of you no matter what side you're defending or you're against or what your personal beliefs are you're supposed to be going at that story it, it's not like Hillary like let's go back to your original point it's not like Hillary Clinton was the perfect candidate or someone that you couldn't criticize or you couldn't scrutinize you could look like deep enough and I mean there were many journalists who did, and they found tons of tons of stuff that you had to publish, and that was important to put out there. Whether it impacted the election anyway is not is not the responsibility of the journalist, but the responsibility of the person that's being scrutinized in the first place. Don't put yourself in those situations. It's not our responsibility to defend you based on our personal beliefs whatsoever. But at the end of the day, you have to scrutinize both the same way, and. This has been an odd election in, 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 in many different ways, and mistakes were made, but it's but what what people want to do now, which is really disturbing, is what you just mentioned. People are coming back to you and, and like the show and trying to blame you for the election. We're not this is not a time for blame, and if you're still blaming, then there's no hope for us at all. It's a terrible sign. But uh, uh, moving pa- past that a little bit, I want to jump into what you wrote. Uh, most recently in a second, but uh, what you've always taken like a very different approach than what you know would have normally seen in MMA writing. What 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 is what is sort of your background uh, either in journalism or academically that or just in life that sort of leads you to write these very sprawling investigative stories about MMA? Well, I grew up in, uh, I'm Egyptian, I'm Egyptian born, I grew up between Egypt and Bahrain for the for the first part of my life and into my early teenage years, uh, and I moved back to Egypt, and then I, by the time I was uh, coming to go to university, I moved to Canada to enter University of Toronto, where I studied political science and uh, economic development, basically, with a few journalist classes here and there, like journalists like, uh, like courses, really, so that's really my, the extent of my uh, journalist qualifications at the end of the day but it's really my interest in political science and history from from being in school and just growing up in Egypt under an, uh, an oppressive regime that also had a fascination with history so we we're taught a lot about pride and just as as you as you as I got older I started to understand I started to, I was able to differentiate between facts and propaganda and I found that to be fascinating and I took that with me as I went through University, but it, but to be honest, when it came to MMA and my actual writing, the the true catalyst for what turned me towards uh, the intersection of sports and politics was going to Russia more than a dozen times over the past couple of years as a commentator with M1 Global being one of Russia's uh, big MMA promotions, and it was really a lucky gig to get in that regard because it's not it's not like I was going to get the opportunity to go there as a journalist. Uh, Many times, so being able to go as a commentator and having that sort of access to fighters and to people and 
being able to uh, being introduced to so many Russians who are willing to take me under their wing and just teach me about their country, just the, the, the love they have for their country. They're just so they're just willing to talk about it no matter what. I have people who are taking me on tours around St. Petersburg and Moscow, Kazan, and all these beautiful, beautiful places that I got to visit and learn about the people. And some were some were more talkative than others in, in, when it came to, when it came down to politics and discussions. So we got into a lot of really interesting things. And then we got into a lot of interesting discussions about MMA. I ended up meeting a lot of people outside of M1 Global that were really fascinating. Names I, I, I cannot mention, but people who helped direct me to the, to the stories I, I, I ended up chasing. And a lot of this information, I won't even pretend that all my articles are deep investigative work where I had to dig up all the information myself. A lot of it is readily available stories in Russia that are not talked about a lot and that are basically kept, kept tucked away. People don't like talking about these things in Russia. It only gets you into trouble, basically. And, that, and the story certainly never made it across, across the ocean to, uh, to us, basically, in, in North America. So I did that with a lot of these stories. I, I tried to teach MMA fans, with, and MMA being the main sport I wrote about. I wrote about, I write about quite a few, but MMA being the one that fascinated me the most because I could tie in all these things in ways that people never read before, in English at least. So the history that came with Russia and the Caucasus and, and, and all these regions surrounding the whole post-Soviet like post sphere that that we know of today from the Azerbaijan, Georgia, etc., just fascinated me to like to no avail really. And then there was the Middle East. That was another fascinating one, and it's it's close to me because at the end I come from there. I come from like I mean I was born in Africa, and being the African country of Egypt and the Arab country of Egypt as well. So we have the ties to the Middle East, and then living in Bahrain, I found their connection to the sport less so Egypt. It applied when I wrote about the Egyptian revolution recently and the MMA promotion of trying to survive. So I tend to try and find ties to things that fascinate me, me personally. And it worked great in MMA. All these stories were never told in the sport. And I found that I was one person in an entire niche and I could take my time with each and every story. I think that really made a difference, not being in the rush for a scoop or trying to chase down a story or, or being worried that someone else is going to beat me to it allowed me to do a lot of quality control with my work. So just just because of my, my, my university degree, just I was taught to always read academic articles. So when I came back from Russia the first time and I had finally met some met Chechen people, and honestly, Felix, I knew nothing about Russia. I had no, what I was I was gobsmacked when I found Russians with with Muslim names basically and just like Arab sounding names. That fascinated me and I honestly I was that ignorant. On my first trip to Russia in 2014, I was that ignorant. So I had to do a lot of research and a lot of reading. And so I downloaded absolutely every academic article I could find and all the interesting books, everything, everything I could find, from the classics to the modern works to all the things about the Chechen wars to Russian history, listened to podcasts, did everything I could to absorb everything I can about, about the people. And that helped me write these articles. All that knowledge stuck with me. And I had time to really write these big, long, detailed magazine-style long forms, and they became quite popular. It became sort of my my signature without me personally like stating it outright until very recently that this would be my focus, sports and politics. It just it happened quite gradually. I mean, laying it out like this, it seems like it was a big plan and it was always planned to be this way. But I knew that I needed if I was going to do something and try and be successful. This wasn't a hobby to me. I'm a journalist by profession, and I take it seriously. And I, and if, I if it's going to be a, if it's going to be a profession, I need to make money somehow, and I needed to stand out. And I was really, really interested in finding something that would make me different in the sport. And this fell into my lap, and I ran with it. Well, I've I've always thought that uh, MMA is kind of the, the the sport of outsiders in a certain way, uh, and like you know, think about you know, the Diaz brothers or John Jones even or uh, or uh, you know, like really anyone, really anyone who has achieved anything in the sport, they. They come from these sort of situations of either societal dislocation or getting to the sport off this beaten path that doesn't really isn't quite a linear path. So I think it would make sense that, like, you know, as a journalist who is surpassed, you know, seemingly almost every MMA journalist, you would come into MMA from this uh, different, unusual path into MMA journalism. Um, 
I want to get into uh, what what you wrote that just came out for Vocative last week. Uh, it's called Caged Nationalism, How the UFC Became Home to a Proxy War. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, it is about the president of the Czech Republic, Ramzan Kadyrov, kicking off a bit of a strange proxy war between fighters due to uh, due to some very typical weirdness from Kadyrov himself. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, about the background to this article? I think this article is a great way to start because one way or another we'll be able to segue into a bunch of different topics from this one. But the background of this article is is really simple. It comes down to the Chechen dictator, Ramzan Kadyrov, deciding he wanted to do something special to celebrate his 40th birthday. So, like the king he believes he is, he had a special MMA event put on. He runs an MMA promotion, mind you. MMA is a big hobby of his. Combat sports in general, but he's taken a real liking to MMA which is a disaster for MMA fans, mind you, but we'll get to that soon enough. So he decides to put on this event, and it was the lineup for MMA fans, for hardcore MMA fans, it would have been a decent fight card had it not been for the three children, literally, there's no other way to put this, children who are fighting on the card. So three children, three different fights, each one, like through all three of the children that, that, that I'm mentioning here are his, are his own actual children. So one was eight years old, one was nine years old, and the third was 11 years old. Each were given opponents from different regions of Russia, none were Chechens, and all three of the kids won their fights. They were wearing absolutely no protection. They were dressed exactly like an MMA fighter. They were part of the weigh-ins the day before with crowds of Kadyrov's cronies and, of course, just terrified Chechens in general, clapping at his every like whim and every gesture, and those those children what terrified me when I was watching the replay wasn't so much the fight, although that was disturbing enough as it was. I mean, one of the one of the fights ended by by KO in the sense that the the Kadyrov son actually kicked his opponent right in the liver, and the boy went down. And we're talking like uh, Alistair Overeem versus Brock Lesnar style. It was just awful to see, but between two eight-year-olds with absolutely no headgear, no protection, nothing. It, it, it was terrifying, but it was their mannerisms that really, really got to me. That told me, like, this, you can truly see the Chechen militarization, the sports militarization of the youth occurring, and you can see it through his children in the sense that their mannerisms were just that of a, a full-grown UFC fighter with their entrance, with the stare-downs, with the way they'd stomp their feet as they'd walk into the cage. They were trained perfectly like for this fight perfectly in the sense that they were fully prepared for this endeavor that they were about to take part in and they you could tell that they were simply trying to please their father and their father of course Ramzan Kadyrov had done this for a very specific reason not only was he doing this to show off it was again more of his propaganda more of his sports diplomacy among his people saying look at my lineage look at look, look at these are the kids that I have brought into this earth this is the future of Chechnya, look at young age, how dominant they are. They're gonna, they are gonna stay with us, basically, and that's the message he's trying to send to his people. We are fighters, and look at my kids from how, from such a young age. They're fighters. So the event goes on, and you th- the Chechens, I can tell they probably they probably assumed that this wouldn't get much media attention, but believe it or not, it was the Russian media themselves that was appalled by the event. This made. Russian news instantly, instantly from the second it was broadcast, by the way, on uh, on public uh, television, it it immediately made headlines everywhere. I I heard of the story and I was watching the fight itself. So you over the next few days, the series of events that unfolded were were bizarre, and I could never have predicted what was what was to come. Starting with Fedor Emelianenko renowned by many as the greatest heavyweight fighter of all time, came out against Kadyrov and condemned the event, called it appalling, and said it was just, it just, it just could not happen. It was illegal, basically. So it was the first time you'd see a major sports figure actually take a public stance, a major Russian, sorry, sports figure take a public stance against Kadyrov. And for those who don't know Ramzan Kadyrov, a quick Google search 
will give you the chills, really. If you, if you don't have goosebumps after reading his heinous list of human rights abuses, you're pretty much not human at that point. He's a terrifying human being. He's known for his intimidation and his public humiliation. So the fact that Fedor even took a public stance against the event was a shocking, shocking gesture. And, and, and honestly, it, it was a courageous one. Either that or he truly had no idea what he was in for, which is just absolutely impossible. Everyone knows who Kadyrov is. So Fedor comes out against him and immediately... I just mentioned the public, in, in, uh, the public humiliation and intimidation tactics. Well, all of his cronies, including now UFC fighters like Abdelkarim Edelov and Magomed Biblatov, trashed Fedor, posting all sorts of Instagram posts with Fedor, uh, his swollen head after one of the, after one of his fights against after his fight against Maldonado in particular, and they really just like humiliated him, saying, "What right does this old man have to talk to us Chechens about these things?" It was just really really horrible conversations between the two, and you could really see the schism there in Russian MMA between the Muslim the Muslim Caucasus fighters and the ethnic Slavic Russians. The schism was never more evident than it was there and then. And then another example of that came up when Nikita Krylov, a pro-Russian Ukrainian fighter who now lives in Moscow, he actually came out again. Uh, he came out to defend Fedor, but he didn't so much defend Fedor as he publicly attacked Avdukarim Edelov and decided that he wanted to challenge him to a fight in the UFC. And that, I'm sorry to say that that was a long background information to get to the story, but that's basically the basis of what we get to here. We ended up with a pro. Russian Ukrainian fighter who was who lived in eastern Ukraine until he basically had to flee from his home during the during the war. I wrote a long form, particularly on Nikita on Nikita Krylov for those who are interested. He called out one of Kadyrov's most loyal subjects, basically. Abdul Karim Edelov is so loyal, and this is a UFC light heavyweight, mind you. He's so loyal to Kadyrov that he actually trained. His three children for the fight. There is Instagram videos still up to this day with all of that. And to this day, you, he's, he's still exceptionally loyal to Kadyrov, and yet he's still signed to the UFC. So now both of them are going back and forth in this war of words, determining when and where they want to fight in the UFC. And it gets a lot more insidious when Nikita Krylov basically tells Abdelkarim Idolov in an Instagram post that I don't want you to do what you did don't don't use these tactics basically i'm going to i'm just going to say i'm just going to say it the way i remember it right now because the post is not in front of me he says that he's not he doesn't want abdukarim edelov to basically treat him the way chechens treat foreign fighters in chechnya by taking him to the woods and t- and scaring him he said let's forget all that and let's fight so it was that instagram post that really caught my attention because Krylov was mentioning things that are just unsaid. This was known that Chechen fighters would intimidate the non-Chechen fighters in many different ways, whether it be phone calls, whether it be drive them into the wilderness and just terrify them and scare them a little bit. It gets a lot worse when they're just ordinary Chechen citizens being intimidated by Kadyrov's forces. Sometimes those disappearances, those people never come back again. But in the case of fighters, that's not just that they don't tend to disappeared it's a lot it's a lot harder to get away with that so that's really what got my attention felix and that led to a whole a realization that there was a, there was historical significance to this and geopolitical uh, ramifications and tension really that resulting from both like the war in you like the the conflict right now in eastern ukraine and the two chechen wars that that uh, we've seen just in, in the past 20 years, really, like in the, that went through the 90s and basically brought the rise of Vladimir Putin and the rise of Kadyrov as well. So it was a fascinating story for me, and I had the opportunity to write it provocative, and I decided to do it. It was something that I believe people should read, and, and, and be, not, not, not because I've written it, but because... I truly believe it's important to understand the context behind why certain fighters are there and why they're fighting in the UFC, and specifically when it's two fighters who are there for a very different reason. Krylov might have come to the defense of Fedor. Yes, he, he, he probably loves Fedor. Most fighters consider him an icon and a role model and everything of the sort, especially from Russia. But that's not the reason you would come out publicly, risk yourself in that way, like, and to risk... like. Kadyrov's wrath to challenge Abdukarim Edelov, it was a much more significant issue there. 
and I felt it was important to tell that story. Uh, just a little background on people who uh, are, are, are are not familiar with uh, Ramzan Kadyrov. Uh, Kadyrov uh, rose to power because his father was in the uh, it was the Second Chechen War. Uh, was he switched sides from being a Chechen independence fighter to becoming you know on the side of the Russian Federation and. He was assassinated. Katerov, who is very young to be a president of a sort of uh, semi-autonomous region in Russia with a great deal of internal strife at the time, he rose to the office of president. He's been an incredibly loyal Putin ally. Uh, He has sort of put a lid on the caucuses by acting incredibly tyrannically. His personal forces, the Katerovsky, they they often appear on... uh, fight cards that he puts on, and to him, as uh, Kareem alluded to, MMA is a type of retail politics for him. It's a way for him to sort of shore up his base. And um, so what uh, with, you know, Krylov is not, he's not like a, he's he's not a Euro-maiden guy. He's a pro-Russian Ukrainian, but there are deeper schisms uh, within this sort of, this coalition between people who nominally are on the same broad political coalition here. Could you talk about the, uh, the schisms revealed between Krylov and uh, the sort of Kadarov faction? Well, you know, at, at a glance, you'd think that Krylov and Edelov, both UFC light heavyweights, one from Ukraine, one pro-Russian from Ukraine, the other Chechen, they, you'd think they'd be on the same side being pro-Russia and have the same interest in Ukraine. And on the surface, it would appear so. But because I've spoken to kid like Krylov multiple times now, and I've done a whole long form on his whole, his whole story in Ukraine and, and why he left, you come to the realization that this is a lot more emotional to him. I think for someone who's truly not a very political person, someone who's quite, quite simple in the sense that he's, his interest is mainly fighting, Krylov is tired is simply uh, uh, I, I can't even explain it. he's just so upset that he's he's lost his his home basically i mean you can't really put this into words but the way he spoke about the donbass region in general you think and just donetsk and just you think that he never wanted to leave there and yes he lives in moscow now but he lives in moscow because he was run out of his of his uh, of his town and he's seen he's seen friends of his die and he's seen others get shot in front of him, and he's seen others with torn-off limbs in front of him. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible life. And then he sees Chechnya, and he sees Abdelkirim Edelov, who not only represents Kedirov, sure, on the, on the outside, that means he represents pro-Russian interests. Yes, because Kedirov was placed there by Putin himself. But he also sees the Chechens that fought in Ukraine, and they, were, they both fought, they, the Chechens fought on two sides of the war. In Ukraine, like he, they fought on two sides. Why? Because there were there are many Chechens who aren't interested in Kedirov's interests. There are many Chechens from the wars, from the Chechen wars, who are jihadis or who are all sorts or soldiers, and they just never wanted to fall under Kedirov's plan. They were they were from different clans, and that power struggle there. When there was a power vacuum, certain people had to be run out of Chechnya, and a lot of them are the ones that. That, that ended up going and fighting their battle in Ukraine because they saw that as, as their extension of the war on Russia. So when you see Chechens fighting and just destroying your own hometown and your home region in general, I don't think even if you know that one, at least some of them are on the same side as you, it's going to even impact your... your it's, you're still going to hate them. You're still going to hate what they stand for and you're going to hate what they've done to your country. And I think that's his stance. Yeah, um, that you know, Kadarov for all his uh, authoritarianism, there are pre-existing schisms that sort of really started to widen in the '90s in Chechnya. You know, Chechnya and Dagestan, to to a lesser extent, I think the dominant uh, Islamic sect there used to be sort of the syncretic Sufi form of belief, but. In the 90s, a lot of Gulf money poured in, and there was a Wahhabization of these areas. 
And, you know, you can you can draw a pretty straight through line between groups like, you know, the the Emirate of the Caucasus and others that are anti Kadarov to countries like Saudi Arabia, countries like Qatar. And, uh, you know, like as you alluded to, these they exist on both sides of the uh, Ukrainian conflict. But there is such a there is a very clear rift between even, you know, a pro-Russian Chechen such as Kadyrov and, you know, a, 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 a Russian who is either, you know, from Russia proper or an ethnic Russian from Ukraine. And, um, I mean, the other, the other thing is that Kadyrov does sort of, in some ways he very much is his own man. He's, instituted a lot of socially conservative policies in Chechnya with regards to alcohol consumption, with regards to, you know, what women are supposed to wear in public, uh, which is also a form of retail. It's sort of like triangulation. It's sort of like uh, Hillary Clinton bringing Michael Bloomberg on stage because there's this big outgrowth of Salafism in, uh, in Chechnya. It's of his interest to sort of... Uh, move to the right in that aspect. I mean, it's it's a similar thing that a lot of authoritarians and uh, societies that have a very strong hardline contingent, be they Saudi Arabia or Bahrain or anywhere, that they will, even if they themselves are not that conservative, as Kadyrov isn't. I mean, there are videos of Kadyrov... Uh, not necessarily having orgies, but doing a bunch of things that are haram. Uh, he's not a Salafist himself, but it is of his interest politically to sort of both keep a lid on things and to discourage a type of civil society against him to sort of uh, give into some sort of Salafist policies politically. Well, he's controlling Chechnya in a, in a multitude of ways, and one of them, which is uh, is religion, basically, as, as you just mentioned. And he actually plays both sides of it too. He he still has that breed of Chechen Sufism. You still see it on his Instagram posts and in, in sort of the way they pray. That sort of that circular group prayer. That's not a Salafist. Uh, that's not a Salafist um, like sort of gesture uh, uh, when when they're standing and you see them sort of like going from side to side. Uh, you'll you'll recognize it in one of the Instagram posts for those for those who are listening. He's playing to both sides a lot, and he does he does cater a lot to the right in Chechnya because he knows that's the way to that's the way to maintain it, the piety in a Muslim state is really really important just in general. At least that that sort of outward presentation, even if it's as superficial as that and nothing more, as we know it is with Ramzan Kadyrov. And in his case, religion is not going to be the only way he controls people because you move to the right and people sometimes move too far right past you. And in, in his case, it's extremism in, in Chechnya. And we're seeing it right now in a way we haven't seen it in years, which is more and more militant attacks within Chechnya. There were reports a few weeks ago that his own bodyguard had attempted to assassinate him and they caught, they, they, they stopped the attempt shortly before it happened. So... Kadyrov is in is in quite a bit of hot water right now, just because of the rise of just trouble and conflict in the region and ten- continuous tension, and that leads to the other issue, which is the way he dominates his his people in general. There is absolutely, of course, no freedom of speech. If you think Russia in general is is restrictive, then uh, I, I implore you to go to Chechnya. It's a place I personally can't enter because of these articles that I've written and, and getting the attention of Kadyrov, and he, he's willing to find people to come and intimidate me and MMA journalists, you can just imagine the things he's willing to do to his own people. And there are reports of it all the time, things that surface. There are currently people right now trying to enter all sorts of countries in Europe, from Poland, etc., from Chechnya, fleeing Kadyrov. And we're not talking about them. The refugee crisis right now, it's a global crisis, of course, and in general, it's well reported. It is generally right now focused on the conflict in Syria. But if people were aware of the number of Chechen refugees that exists right now. Not it's obviously not the same amount as during the, the Chechen wars, but they are fleeing right now because of his rule and because of the way he rules and his domination. He is so interested in he's interested in complete control of the North Caucasus, just so that he can continue to leverage his will against the Kremlin. The Kremlin is the one feeding him his budget. He would never have been able to build. 
Chechen up and build Grozny in particular, I've spoken to Chechen fighters who praise Kedirov because I can give you an example, Hussein Khalib. Hussein Khalib, during the first Chechen, the, during the Chechen war, what he remembers, his memory of the Chechen war was being in a refugee camp, being stuck there and being rationed food. And he would trade a lot of his rations for Taekwondo classes with another Chechen that was in the training camp. So that's how he and his brother got into, into martial arts. And to him, he goes from that memory of being stuck on rations with a dead father and, and, and just with his mother to then being elevated to the Russian elite under, Putin, under, sorry, under Kadyrov because of his fighter status and being with, with Kadyrov's team and watching his beloved home country, like his home country's home republic, Chechnya, flourish and become uh, just... I guess a sort of like a Dubai within within Chechnya. Like Grozny took took on took on a whole new form. It's just all these bright, tall, massive buildings, and he, Kadyrov built his own version of the Kaaba the, the, in Mecca, and he he just took his money and ran and took the took the Kremlin's money and ran. And Putin needed to do that as well so that he could basically calm the region down. But Putin in the end ended up creating a monster because Kadyrov's rule now will either will backfire on the Kremlin one way or another. If he continues to rule with impunity as he does right now, like it's his little, uh, his own fiefdom within the Russian uh, Federation, problems will still rise. And, and he will continue to cause trouble in the form of either potentially assassinating uh, political foes, targeting political foes, just intimidating them in general. He's put up Instagram posts of, of Russian speakers in the House and all different uh, politicians who've come out to the Europe, and he put like the sniper bulls, that sort of thing, I, I forget what that's called, right on their face and put post that on Instagram and say, doesn't this look great? That's his, that's his form of intimidation. And still, and Russia does not come out against him. They have not condemned him. It was recent, actually, that, that you've seen reports of Putin like uh, uh, limiting the Chechen budget a little bit. But through discussion, it's, it's sort of their back and forth, their political back and forth there. But Putin needs Kadyrov as much, like, as nearly as much as Kadyrov needs him. If Kadyrov falls for any reason, if he's assassinated, as, as much as that news might not upset many people, and as much as that might not upset a lot of people under him right now, the truth of the matter is even more could potentially suffer without him just because of... When, when, when the, how volatile the region surrounding are. You still have Dagestan close by, which is also suffering and deals with a lot of fundamentalism. Any sort of insurgency is possible at that point. And Kadyrov, at least with his military might and the Kadyrovsky that you mentioned earlier, he's able to have some sort of control over Chechnya. And that's only because that's Putin's fault, honestly. This is the fault of just the way Russia laid this out and, and years of conflict with Chechnya, that we're, we're left with the choice of this dictator or complete anarchy, chaos, and potentially even more fundamentalism and potentially enemy, like things like ISIS infiltrating even more than they have. We already know that, that ISIS is in Khazvayot, Pakistan, and that is... That is right there on the border with Chechnya. It's right there. And that's very, very, very dangerous. There is no way Kadyrov's not worried right now. There's no way he's not cracking down even harder on his people. But we're, in a, we're, in a, we're between a rock and a hard place right now, and I honestly don't know what the solution is. Yeah, I mean, in this story, you see so many intersections of problems that have really come to the head to a head in the world in the last five years i mean you have you have what happens when similar to what happened in the region in the 90s with the wahhabization where gulf countries could give these extremely poor people more money than they had ever seen in their lives it would engender these feelings of pride and gratitude and you know, cause them to do to do things to be loyal to things that they never thought that they would. Uh, the same thing happens with what Kadyrov does with these fighters he ingratiates himself with, and his the current position he's in this very precarious position, this precarious position that it puts Chechnya and Russia and really the entire region. And is very similar to what we've seen in the Middle East in the past few years, where with, uh, with you know, take, for example, Saudi Arabia. The Sauds are just a horrible, tyrannical, shitty family. They just 
all the time execute people who did nothing but write a blog post or or, or happened to be gay and someone found out. But, you know, the only other – in a society like that, in a very totalitarian society where the only form of expression can be either hyper-loyalty or extreme religious belief, the only organized political opposition that could replace this ty- tyrannical force would be someone even more hardline. Uh, and Kadyrov actually – he has some tactics that are similar to the Saudis. Both in you know rewarding people with patronage, but it's especially what he's doing with Syria. He the Saudis sort of take care of their population of angry young men that could be a danger to their rule by sending them. Uh, you know, since the seventies, since Prince Turkey Al Faisal was the leader of uh, GID, they would send these groups of very religious, privileged young men to places like like Afghanistan, later to places like Bosnia, Chechnya, Dagestan, now to Syria, now to Yemen sometimes. And Kadyrov is doing the same thing. Kadyrov is sending his forces to fight for Russia in Syria, just on the opposite side of what the Saudis are doing. And yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. What is even the solution here? There is no right choice. This is this is sort of you know if it was even if you go outside that these things are just morally wrong. These sort of tyrannical these tyrannical setups are so wrong morally for what they do to people for the dis for the complete lack of rights for disappearance for intimidation for the hell it makes people's lives. There's also very often no good way you can get out of it. It often transitions into something worse because you know, you have reduced any other any other opposition force that could govern in a way that would uh grant more rights to people. That would have a more open society. And yeah, like you said, rock in a hard place. We I'm glad that you did mention Saudi because uh, that was the other place that I was really that I was really like considering when I when I used Kadyrov uh, as an example of the rock in a hard place because you see it with the way they rule over their people as well. And the fall of Saudi could mean could just could could mean disaster truly for the rest of the Middle East. And that's <laughs> I don't think that's a problem any of us are truly prepared for. Truly, truly prepared for. They are morally reprehensible human beings. The, the Al Saud family, that is, not all Saudis, obviously. Right, the yeah. Al Saud family. Horrible, horrible, deplorable human beings in general. And the things they've done to their people, are disastrous. But we we have there are there are other bigger, worse problems looming right now. And another example of that is the tiny little neighboring island they have that's right, that's right next to uh, Saudi Arabia being Bahrain. And uh, Bahrain obviously has has a significant conflict between the Sunnis being the royalty and the, the ruling class in general and the majority of truly the, 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 the upper middle class versus the Shia majority of this one million uh, people population in general uh, on, on this island. The majority of them are Shia, but they have been oppressed by the Sunni regime, which has full monopoly and control over all arms of the military and of the majority of the positions in politics. And you have rule with impunity at this point, right? There's this, that's just a recipe for impunity at the end of the day. And uh, you see it with, with their rule and you're seeing it with the conflict that's going on now. Like they, they recently executed three people and there have been protests in Bahrain all since. But you know what else happened in that, in that same time? The prince of Bahrain, Prince Khalid bin Hamad al-Khalifa, he fought in his second MMA fight. And that was major headlines in Bahrain. This, that happened two days after the execution. Yeah. Two days after the execution. That's how they chose to distract human beings, to distract their people from ongoing conflict by using this like insidious form of sports diplomacy to cater to their people, to still show a sign of strength and just distract the international media as well. The whole point is they'd rather have people writing about, oh my God, look at this prince who's running marathons and fighting, rather than people writing about the the executions that are occurring the executions it's not like these people are being executed for or for like 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 put to like uh, to a death sentence the way they would be in the united states and in whatever states it works in these are people who gave uh, confessions under torture 
and we're not given grants for appeal or anything of the sort, and then executed at a specific time to infuriate the people. The thing is, Bahrain is playing with fire at this point. They really, really are, and the idea that sports can be used as a way to distract, well, that's a tool that the Arab world is very used to as well. This is really something we do quite regularly. Abdel Fattah Sisi, Egypt's... Uh, Egypt's current military dictator right now, all he, he's more than happy to ban Egypt's ultras, the, the revolutionary hero uh, heroes, or many revolutionary heroes. They were uh, a, foot, a hardcore Egyptian soccer group, basically, of fans that ended up being uh, really instrumental in the 2011 Egyptian revolution because they were used to conflict with police. Uh, he's more than happy to label them a terrorist uh, organization, but then comes out and declares 2016 the year of the youth. And then he's going to build all these sports complexes and that we're going to be significant again on the international stage. Well, significant on the international stage really benefits who? It benefits him. It's state prestige for him and his policies. Again, this brand of sports diplomacy I find to be evil and horrible. And it's the way it's what's tarnishing sports. People come to sports for escapism. And I'm not necessarily promoting this form of escapism. But if, if for those for those who, who watch sports to escape, I, I truly I implore you to really understand that these people right here, these authoritarian leaders, they're here to ruin these sports. They're taking what's yours, they're weaponizing it against their own people. Consider that. Consider that for a while. I find too many people tell me, stick to sports. Well I am sticking to sports as a matter of fact, I'm trying to clean your sport for you. It's my job to get to gather this information. It's my job to allow this access of information to occur. I live in a country right now where there is freedom of expression. I can speak. From where I can, I can, I can speak. I know people in Chechnya who pass on information to me because they simply can't save themselves. These are people who could have written these articles. These are people who could have done all these different things. They can't do it. They're terrified, not just for themselves, but for their families. This happened in the Middle East as well. I could be at risk when I go home to Egypt, when I go to different places, when I go to Russia. It's not safe, but at the end of the day, you take a job, and the job is to give people this information. It's access to information, public education, and to scrutinize the authorities that are there in positions of power before things turn bad. And in sports, well, for too long, journalists in general were just looking for a free ticket, and they just want to be there for the event and to enjoy what's going on, to take it in like a fan. Well, it's great to be a fan, but do your job first. Be a journalist. Why do you think? I mean, this has also been something that I've noticed, uh, which is you know makes it especially funny that people believe that sports is in a vacuum, which it, it never has been. It's insane that people think that. But I've noticed, yeah, in the past five or so years, that the use of MMA as this public sports diplomacy in these authoritarian governments has skyrocketed. You know, the first. First thing I actually wrote for Vogue was about uh, Bahrain and uh, the Bahrainian royal family's uh, entryism to MMA. But why? Why recently? Why do you think recently it's blown up so much with these types of governments? It's an interesting question. Uh, I think as as the sport got more popular, and so I think with Bahrain it's an interesting case because I would never have guessed that really Arab countries would have taken MMA on so easily. Being being quite conservative the way we are and not really violence of that form was never really a popular thing on television, at least for me growing up in Egypt. This is probably why the sport's still not very popular in Egypt. So Bahrain is an example that really, really surprises me, how this promotion, that's why it's only one of the many forms of sports diplomacy that Bahrain has. They're also using the Formula One in their case as well for, for many of these examples. They're using the marathon, running just running marathons in general, uh, like the Ironman. So Bahrain is using a, a multitude of, of, of different uh, sports for their personal agenda. But to, to take it back to, say, Chechnya, well, I think it's the rise of popularity of MMA. They see an opportunity. They see a sport that, for Kadiro, for instance, there was already another promotion there that was that, that existed, being ACB. ACB existed and was flourishing, was doing quite well for itself. So Kadiro sees this and thinks, well, I'd rather be in control of a lot of these fighters. I can take this and I can use it to my advantage. I mentioned earlier the militarization of Chechen youth. That's a thing that's happened. That's a thing that's been happening for years. And he he is trying to make sure that every Chechen boy that grows up can grow up to be a fighter. And I'm not talking an MMA fighter. I'm talking a fighter in general. A fighter, who, someone who can be in the military, someone who can... It has to be a part of their people. He's just trying to create one massive giant army. And MMA is one way to promote 
it in a less uh, in a less militaristic style. So you 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 have the glory of it. You have the fact that uh, people just just how just the bright lights and fighting in the cage and the honor and the discipline and all these different elements that uh, fans are all these different keywords basically that fans keep giving out when they talk about the sport, but. Uh, you, it's 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 also a sport that they that he uses because he knows that he can elevate these fighters to the Russian elite, being positions where he's giving them free Mercedes and free cars and houses and salaries to live on, and they become part of the upper class in Russia and they become recognized. I mean, their 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 fights are broadcast. He's got millions and millions of followers on Instagram and and Twitter, so he'll promote them there they become these big stars and they're forever in his debt so he's building his own his own circle around him and these people who are just supremely loyal to him and and need him to stay around just for them to maintain those positions so he's using he found a sport that was just all too easy and it was packaged well for him because of promotions that existed there already in acb and because of people like fedor and the sports popularity in russia that that was just it, Chechnya got the ripple effect of that, and and Dagestan and Chechnya and the North Caucasus already being just so renowned for wrestling, they took on amateur wrestling as they took on MMA, and just it was it was natural. You see it right now, just the influx of talent from there. It's just, it's astonishing. Fighters like Khabib Nurmagomedov, who's from Dagestan, and all these other fighters, the UFC. Is, is, is signing a lot of really interesting, uh, intriguing talent from there, but they also happen to be signing some very, very, very uh, uh, worrisome talent like Abdelkarim Edelov, who trained the uh, Kadyrov's three children for their illegal child MMA fights that later became a big scandal for the Kremlin that they had to actually publicly deal with. They just signed Magomed Biblatov, a top flyweight and a really talented, talented fighter. Like I can honestly say one of the most talented flyweights, if not, if not the only person who could potentially truly challenge Demetrius Johnson right now. You understand the signing. You understand it, but this is also a person who who sent me an Instagram post telling me if I have nothing good to say to shut my mouth. And this is also a person who continuously has supported Kadyrov and is truly one of his closest allies. Do we just do we want sports to be infiltrated with these with these sorts of people? That's 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 another question we have to ask because it's not like Kadyrov is now simply using his his uh his MMA hobby here or his own propaganda, his local politics behind it for his own good. But he is spreading it abroad. He is now using the UFC. So in his Instagram posts, when when Biblatov signed with the UFC, he would say, look at this. Chechens are now part of the best organization. We're going to go win. We're going to win the title and we will show Chechen pride abroad and how we are the best. He's just trying to rile up his people once again. And the UFC is falling into yet another geopolitical like proxy war at this point it's just it's it's the UFC and MMA in general is just a, a fantastic medium for all these just horrible and horrific human beings to to just manipulate and 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 contort and just weaponize for their own uh, for their own political gain um yeah i mean Ch- chechen fighters have been chechen and dagestani fighters have been incredibly successful in mixed martial arts, especially when you consider the relatively small population sample you have from Chechnya and Dagestan compared to America and Brazil, the two other countries that are sort of preeminent in MMA, much larger countries with much bigger talent pools, but they're just so unusually good at it. And yeah, because of that combat sports uh, background, because of how, how many great uh, competitors there were in, in wrestling and grappling from these regions. You know, what I think Buvisar Setiev is he's widely considered by many to be the greatest Olympic wrestler of all time. And he was, he was a Chechen, but uh, so sort of uh, closing up here, uh, what do you, what do you see as sort of the, what can become of this? What can become of this now schism between Russian affiliated fighters? Because this goes beyond, you know, just a macro political thing. Because ostensibly they're all 
they all should be in the same sort of political, geopolitical side. But obviously things get more complex than that, especially when you get into a coalition of people that are quite different. And they're already fighters, both in the sense of fighting in wars and uh, fighting in in the sports sense. But what, you know, how bad can this get, basically? It's a really good question, and one I have not completely considered, but I can say this. For instance, the UFC is planning an event in Russia, and honestly, I can't even give you a good reason why they'd want to do an event in Russia right now. Neither taking Khabib there, so he's not the, the biggest UFC star, the one everyone does actually, like the biggest sorry, Russian UFC star, the one that everyone wants to see, he's not going to be on that event. They're not going to make money over there. They can't put it on pay-per-view. I've been to so many different events for so many different promotions in Russia. Most of the people there are in there for free, and the ones who are in the stands who have paid for tickets, the ones that aren't like ringside, etc., they are paying minimal rubles for this, and the ruble is already worth absolutely nothing at this point, thanks to sanctions and the recession, everything that's happening. So an event there doesn't even make sense at this point, but okay. So now we're going to go to Russia. They're going to have to find a lot of fighters to put on this Russian card, Right. So you're going to already co- connect and combine all these different people in this region. And you're going to have people like Ramzan Kadyrov who's going to want to attend this event as well. And it's just like a boiling pot and like a really just hazardous elements that you just don't you – don't, you don't know if they should really be connected like this. And Krilov versus Edelov is something I really hope the UFC doesn't actually consider for a real friend, for, for an MMA fight. I truly hope they don't try and get that actually done. I hope they, if they ever, if someone from the UFC ever does read the vocative article, uh, Felix, I'd rather they take from that to keep the two fighters away from each other, like truly, because it's not so much what would happen in the cage as much as what could happen afterwards. Having them actually fight and say Edlov gets uh, beaten and say... Krilov makes a statement in the cage or says something. If this is in Russia or if this is even in the United States when this happens, there could be repercussions with Kadyrov himself. He could take this as an insult, especially if, if Krilov takes his takes the sort of stance he takes on Instagram in public. That could be absolutely terrible for him. I, 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 I truly wonder sometimes if this comes from a place of ignorance or, of, uh, or, or just absolute ridiculous inhuman courage that he's doing that he's doing this really if he really knows the risk he puts himself in when he challenges Kadyrov and people so closely affiliated with Kadyrov I mean if Kadyrov like I said before if he's willing to attack journalists abroad if he's willing to intimidate anyone and absolutely anyone who stands in his way from trolls on the on the internet to people in front of him to people he's never met to villages that are that that, that need his help he'll set them on fire if he absolutely has to and Krilov needs to know that and needs to really, really t- take the next step very carefully. I hope the UFC does not put them together. And this could apply to a lot of different fighters, really. Like, with the alliances with, with Kadyrov, you could see more of the schism between Muslim Caucasus fighters and ethnic Slavic fighters. Like, Fedor could have just been the tip of the iceberg. And this Krilov stuff is just a start to something that could grow to become a much bigger issue over the next few years. I honestly, these are the first two examples of it that I've seen in MMA, in Russian MMA so far, at least the first two that I've really paid attention to. So it's going to really be interesting to see how it unfolds over the coming few months. I mean, Krilov would have been in a better position to bargain for the fight had he won his last fight against Misha Serkinov, but he did not. So it might be for the best, really, that he doesn't have to face Edlov. And Edlov being on a suspension, God knows what he ends up doing in the first place. So this might, might be a non-factor at the end of the day, but it leads back to the bigger issue that the UFC needs to understand who they're hiring, who they're signing, and all the geopolitical uh, consequences that come with it. There's a lot of history behind these fighters, and they're fighters at the end of the day. They're human beings with emotions, with concerns, with interests, and sometimes fed propaganda. And that really, really is not a good is not a good thing. It's not something you want for your branding. I mean, when you talk about a sport that keeps claiming it wants to be part of the mainstream. You couldn't, you couldn't be so, you couldn't be further from the truth when you're dealing with the UFC and just, just the, 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 the caliber 
of fighters and just the sorts of human beings in the regions and that, that they're hiring right now. It's just, it doesn't work that way. I'm sorry, you, you're not going to find these sorts of stories in the NBA right now. You're not. It's just not <laughs> happening. Oh, man, people thought that uh, Dan Lambert was an overbearing dick as a manager. <laughs> it could be so much worse. Uh, <laughs> but, uh Kareem, thank you so much. That was fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I know we already talked about uh, cage nationalism on Vocative, but you also had something come out uh, for Bloody Elbow about Egypt. And uh, you want to plug that in anything else? The cage nationalism is the article uh, that that I'm most proud of this month, along with my Egyptian revolution uh, long form. And I also wrote an article for Sports Politica, the site that I started uh, recently dealing specifically with the intersection of sports and politics, all going to be independent journalism there. Wrote an article talking about how the UFC is about to enjoy increased ties to Trump's White House. And I really would like people who listen to this to take, to take, a, to take a read there, because if you read that article, you'll understand that these sorts of issues aren't just happening in the Caucasus or in the Middle East. But the UFC is taking part in its own sports diplomacy right now. With, with, Trump's, with Trump's White House, and that's not good news for the UFC. That's not good news for MMA fans at all, especially for UFC fans. It's, uh, it's, it's an int- we have really an interesting few years ahead in MMA, and I don't think there could have been a more relevant time for me to be doing the work I do. But yes, thank you so much, Felix, for having me on. It was an absolute pleasure. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of the show. Well, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of your work, and uh, we're going to put the link to all three of these articles in the episode descriptions. Uh, follow Kareem at uh, Zidane Sports on Twitter. Uh, Kareem, thank you again. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Felix.